Welcome to the European Greens podcast, where we talk about the way forward to a greener and fairer Europe, together with green leaders and activists. The European Greens are a European political party that brings together national parties sharing the same green values, like democracy, feminism, support of LGBTQ+, and climate action. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, and together, let's green our future. Hello, everyone. We are today discussing with Yanis Natsis. Yanis is currently leading the advocacy for better and affordable medicines at the European Public Health Alliance. He's policy manager, universal access and affordable medicines. He's also a board member of the European Medicines Agency, EMA, one of the two patient representatives on the board. He's committed to promoting transparency, accountability, and protecting the public interest in health and medicines policy. He's been doing that for many years, so he has a lot of experience. He's also a founding member of the European Alliance for Responsible R&D and Affordable Medicines. You can see that he's the perfect invitee to discuss the topic today. So basically... Um, Today, what we would like to discuss with Yanis is the big political question around transparency, accountability, and the quality of um, health policy and medicines. Uh, Yanis, you you recently tweeted this, this statement, um, COVID-19 is a pandemic, but secrecy in dealings with pharma is endemic. Um, we can understand from this that you consider that the problem of opacity is a, a structural and um, like ancient problem. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yes, with pleasure. And thank you, Melanie, and thank you for this invitation to have this exchange, which is very timely. Um, I do believe that since the start of the pandemic, indeed, uh, secrecy is endemic with pharma. Uh, we just need to remind people, of course, that um, secrecy is a key element for uh, the pharmaceutical companies and it's, uh, it's nothing new. Uh, pharmaceutical companies thrive in secrecy. They take advantage of the secret deals that they sign with uh, the EU member states bilaterally to sell uh, medicines. Um, and at the same time, they are in favor of confidentiality and secrecy when it comes to the clinical trials um, data and many other aspects of the pharmaceutical business model. So just to say that secrecy is endemic in the pharmaceutical systems, but what is worrisome is that in the past um, two years, in light of the pressure and the emergency um, that we've been facing, the public health emergency with uh, the COVID-19, um, we see that governments under this pressure, uh, they are signing a lot of deals uh, with very little scrutiny um, from uh, uh, even the European Parliament or, or national parliaments too. Um, so we've been pushing a lot for the publication, for instance, of the EU uh, vaccine contracts, because we think that it is important in the overall trust in the in the uh, crisis management and, of course, uh, to counter vaccine hesitancy, to um, safeguard uh, patient safety uh, and many other key elements that go well beyond mm -hmm. the pandemic. And maybe before we go a little bit more in details about what happen and how the situation worsened during the crisis. Could you maybe explain a little bit more what are the concrete consequences of opacity in the field of pharma? Like, Why is it 
such a big problem? What does it create as concrete consequences for people? Absolutely, thank you. That's a very good question. Um, first of all, it creates an information asymmetry. To put it very simply, if you're a government and you're sitting on, on one side of the table and on the other side of the table, you have one of the big uh, pharmaceutical giants. By the way, these giants now in light of the pandemic have become titans with disproportionate influence and clout. Um, there, on that, uh, uh, around that table, it's clear that one side has much more information than you representing the public interest. Why am I saying this? Because usually, uh, not usually, always, these, these pharmaceutical titans, they have a, a broad overview. They know exactly what's happening in every single member state. They know exactly what kind of deals they're signing. Whereas, on the other hand, the public authorities of any given state, unless you are a very important, uh, big EU um, member state, and there you have a bit more bargaining power, uh, there there is clearly an information asymmetry um, there is an information asymmetry that uh, feeds into this power imbalance. And therefore, there it's not even clear whether you're getting a good deal for you. So to put it very, you ask me, what is that the impact? What is the consequence on, on uh, people's lives? For instance, we end up paying very high prices for our medicines. Uh, I think it's clear over the past, I would say, six years where excessive medicines prices is a systemic problem and there is a political acknowledgement that we're talking about a systemic problem that no country from Cyprus all the way to Denmark, no country can really cope with these uh, unreasonably high uh, medicines prices that actually threaten the sustainability of all healthcare systems, even the German one mm -hmm. or the French one. So there, there is an issue, as I said, the information asymmetry and the power imbalance are some very real, have real consequences, but also clinical trials data. Clinical trials data, do we know enough about the medicines we approve? How good are these medicines? How do they really work in the different patients? They, these are in the, in the different clusters, in the different categories and, and, and groups of, uh, and subgroups of patients. These are all questions where we could get much more complete answers if we had more mm -hmm. transparency. There is a series of imbalances in the pharmaceutical systems in Europe. Um, and there is also uh, a series of um, uh, real-life consequences across the board, uh, from prices all the way to clinical trials data, all the way to the patentability criteria and the, and the patents landscape, uh, which is a, a whole different uh, discussion, uh, where, where opacity and secrecy have detrimental effects for the public interest and public health. Okay, thank you. That was, I think, very clear. Um, the question I wanted to ask you now is, so you basically um, take the position that this situation in a pandemic, uh, instead of improving, you could have expected that because of the very high prominency of the debate, then transparency and accountability could improve. But what you are basically saying is that it's the opposite, we tend to have more opacity and more secrecy because of the pandemic uh, rather than having more transparency, which could happen because you have a lot of public pressure. Is that actually the case? Correct. And I would say, unfortunately, uh, in light of the pandemic, uh, secrecy has become, again, the norm. Don't get me wrong. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that Prior to the pandemic, there were some baby steps, some promising signs. Governments in Europe were starting to realize that the, the secrecy and the confidentiality in the deals that they were signing, etc., were actually 
counterproductive for them. But then with the emergency and the understandable pressure, let's be, let's be honest and realistic, the understandable pressure to uh, be swift and effective in the actions uh, undertaken by public authorities, um, transparency and accountability have been sacrificed. To give you an example, uh, for me, I will never forget that um, there were deals, multi-billion euro deals signed between the European Union and its member states and uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, to procure these vaccines. And parliamentarians, both on the EU but also the national level, were struggling to get their hands on information. They were asking the Commission, but also governments, what are we signing exactly? And what are the terms and conditions of those contracts? And are we, what are the risks and what are the benefits of these deals? And they weren't getting mm. any concrete answers because the Commission was simply answering, I'm sorry, I cannot tell you anything. I'm, my hands are tied by the confidentiality clauses that I'm signing up to on behalf of the EU and, and, and its 450 mm -hmm. million citizens. So unfortunately, um, uh, where you would expect to have, everyone is talking about the vaccines, everyone is talking about these deals, and there we wouldn't get like basic information. And how do you explain that uh, basically public authorities accept in a way to navigate in a, such an environment? Because basically what you explained at the beginning is that opacity is bad for public authorities because it creates an asymmetry of information. So how do you explain that actually governments and public authorities in general accept to create a legal environment where actually they don't have access to information that they actually need? Very good question. Um, well, I think we need to distinguish a bit between uh, the, the COVID-19 vaccines and, and medicines in general, because these are two different categories. But of course, what is happening during the pandemic, for instance, with the vaccines or the, some other therapeutics uh, against COVID-19, obviously has a lasting impact and a spillover effect on broader medicines policies. And I think we still haven't realized the, the consequences of, um, uh, of what has happened over the past two years on uh, future uh, policy developments. Um, having said that, I think governments for years did not even realize that they have leverage that they can use, or they thought that perhaps the uh, prices problem uh, for medicines in general was not as uh, uh, big as they, as they thought. Um, but now I think there is a clear realization, um, especially since I would say 2015 in Europe, and that is uh, relatively recent, it is a very recent debate, that there is this systemic problem with the prices. And this is why I said before the pandemic, there were some promising signs of, of progress, um, of uh, moving to question several aspects of the pharmaceutical uh, business uh, model. Now, it remains to be seen, uh, I think now, as a result of the pandemic, um, pharmaceutical companies are enjoying wide open mm -hmm. doors. Um, you see um, CEOs of pharma companies, they pick up the phone and they talk directly mm -hmm. to heads of state and governments. This is something new, uh, this politicization at the highest level. Um, which uh, in many cases, you know, it even leaves um, uh, ministers of health outside the conversation. Ministers of health are kind of sidelined because all of the decisions are taken at the highest mm -hmm. political level. And sometimes uh, ministries of health are not even consulted. Um, but this is a new trend. And I think it is here to stay for the foreseeable future. And now we see that the emphasis is no longer on the high prices. So member states for the time being, and I emphasize for the time being, they do not seem to be concerned by the high prices. They are even saying, 
it's okay. We can pay a bit more um, in order to access practically anything and everything. And this, in my opinion, is a worrisome trend uh, because as we very well know, and it's very well documented, in most cases, the so-called innovation is not real innovation, it's imitation. So instead of really pushing for a real assessment of the, of the value in, of innovation, I think we're moving a bit backwards, along with the, the high priority of uh, uh, attracting investment mm -hmm. in Europe. But attracting investment in Europe is a big file. So, yeah, you say that now basically uh, governments tend to be not worried about the, the price effects of opacity, but you also said at the beginning that opacity not only has a negative impact on the prices and therefore on the affordability of medicines, but also potentially on the quality of them because we cannot properly control um, how they work and the trials. Uh, you, you, We could think that this is, if the price is not something that is too worrying for government, and the quality of the medicines is worrying. Yes, um, in Europe, we now have uh, the so-called health technology assessment regulation, which effectively wants to assess, you know, and answer the real questions about our medicines. Uh, do we know enough about our medicines and how do they work for different um, patients? But Let's look at what happened with the vaccines. Everything happened at the, at the point of the marketing authorization. And this is something that the industry wants. So once the, the vaccines were green-lighted by the EMA, um, they were directly available uh, without too many questions asked. And of course, the importance of having transparency in clinical trials, I think it's clear, especially with the vaccines. You remember that we were all struggling to understand how effective is one vaccine over mm -hmm. the other based on some mm -hmm, press mm -hmm. releases yeah, by yeah. companies. Uh, so I think that the issue of transparency in clinical trials, every household uh, across the world understood what it means to have clinical trials. We all, we all had mm -hmm. this crash course. So um, on the other hand, I want to be also optimistic saying that it is important what has been achieved in Europe with the EU vaccine procurement, the fact that we had vaccines I'm not going to talk about the global equity dimension because there, obviously, the EU is failing big time, although EU is exporting a lot of vaccines uh, to the rest of the world as opposed to the US, for instance. Um, but what I want to say is that I would like to see what happened with the COVID-19 vaccines. What do I mean by that? We saw that they were available across the European Union at the same time. Uh, and that is a positive legacy, in my opinion. I would like to see that also for other medicines because... I want to remind our audience uh, that a lot of the very expensive medicines, they don't even make it to numerous EU markets. To put it simply, many countries, they will never see a lot of those medicines, although those medicines benefit from an EU-wide marketing authorization. And this is ridiculous because also at the same time, I want to uh, emphasize that companies decide to withdraw products from markets in order to threaten uh, governments or to blackmail uh, decisions. I mean, we saw something similar even with the, the scarcity discussion mm -hmm. for the vaccines. Uh, let's, I mean, at the same time, just to conclude by saying that the EU vaccine strategy was a success because in the end, uh, look at the percentages of vaccination across the union today. And I, I think we are much better off when we work together rather than <laughs> each country individually. But at the other hand, on the other hand, uh, governments and national vaccination plans were up in the air depending on uh, companies' mm -hmm. business plans. I think what you say is very interesting because it shows the, the 
roots of the problem that is that basically our um, health policies are driven in a way by monopolies uh, and big private companies being monopolies um, and they have obviously uh, like any company um, they try to make money and to <clears throat> maximize profits that's not always of course in in line with the strategy of public interest uh, and i think that's a that's a big root of the problem how do you see um, what should be the way? Like, how can we? Um, this sounds to be like at the, at the root of the problem. Do you see a way to, in a way, break this monopoly of these big pharma companies? And what would be the way? Like, what can we do to decentralize, to uh, make it more driven by citizens? Like, how? What is the way you propose to change that? Yes, um, so I, I see two worrisome trends, which is one, the politicization, which can also have some benefits uh, because there is an understanding at the highest levels, but also, to your point, I see the industrial industrialization of health policies. Everyone wants to present uh, industrial policies as health policies, and we see them now even with the establishment of, uh, of HERA. Uh, what is the way out? I would say... Now, one of the legacies that of COVID-19 that the companies want to maintain and to safeguard is the fact that a lot of public money, a lot of public money was used to share the risk and de-risk effectively the, um, the R&D process. <laughs> what do I mean by this? I mean that companies were um, embarking on a, a useful, obviously, R&D process, but governments with public money, they were willing to, and they did, um, minimize the business risk for those companies. Um, in principle, that could work on, on, on certain categories, for instance, vaccines. If we were to do this and to do something similar also in the case of medicine, so having the public be a co-developer, I'm fine with that. And in some cases, we need to meet companies halfway. But I expect that in that case, if the, the public is, if we are to be the co-developer, then we should have a say and to steer the innovation process. We should have conditions attached to these public guarantees, flexibilities, incentives, public money, because the public support is multi-layered. Huh? It's not like you just give them a few hundreds of millions or a billion euros and that's it. No, the, the public support is really multifaceted. I want that public support to be accounted for, factored into the final price of the end products. I want the public to really have a say and, and steer the innovation process. For instance, do we want new antibiotics? In the case of antibiotics, it's clear, even the industry agrees, that they have dropped the ball over the past 30 decades, three, three decades, 30 years. We haven't seen new, uh, substantially new and good antibiotics. So do we want to put public money in a jar in order to have new antibiotics? I'm all for that. But then not just throw uh, money, carte blanche, you know, a blank check to the companies. Just make sure that you act as a wise investor, a wise investor who expects to have a serious return on this multifaceted, multi-layered public investment and public support. Mm -hmm. no, I think that's, that's very clear. And then it, it, I, I wanted to ask you, but you already started to answer a little bit, um, uh, maybe a little bit more concretely for people to understand um, what, uh, what exactly do we need to change in the laws? Do we need to implement them better? What are the like the legal changes we have to fight for? 
Sure. I will start with the field of the competition law and policies, because what worries me is that these companies, as I said, they were giants before, now they are titans. So I see an excessive concentration of power in a single business sector. And this business sector is not any business sector. It's the business sector that has to do with public health and our health and patient safety. So there I'm a bit worried because health pharma companies are not like Google or Amazon, and that's another problem. So A, uh, implement, better enforce, improve, um, and scrutinize uh, everything that has to do under the competition law and policies angle and prism. So mergers and acquisitions, uh, which also have in the pharmaceutical field, in the pharmaceutical domain, um, unlawful business practices, mm -hmm. anti-competitive uh, business practices by companies. So one, I think there we need to really strengthen the resources that we have on the EU and national level to really strengthen and make the most of what we can get out of the proper implementation of competition law and policies. I think that is a very powerful tool. Secondly, promote transparency across the spectrum, patentability criteria, the patent uh, landscape, to, uh, clinical trials data. And of course, there, the EU with the EMA, I think we are at the forefront of clinical trials data transparency, but that is an ongoing, I would say, uh, battle. Um, Experiment with uh, prices, um, uh, net prices transparency, exchange information. We've seen over the past five years that, um, five, six years, that governments in the richest part of the EU, in the rich north, not in the, in the traditional, let's say, usual suspects, but in, in the rich north, governments are so worried by the high prices that they are crossing their own taboos and they are deciding to work together and negotiate together and exchange sensitive information amongst themselves. So that means that they are better prepared around that table, as I described before. It is a very different story when you have one pharmaceutical titan on one side of the table and then on the other you have one medium-sized or a small-sized, uh, uh, small member state. And when there you have five or six member states working together, negotiating together, even, even perhaps even buying together. And there I think another positive side is the legacy of the EU vaccines procurement. That is something that we need to improve because it is a success story with serious flaws. I mentioned them briefly before. But I like the fact that the EU is buying together and using our leverage, hopefully, in even a stronger way uh, in order to get better terms and conditions for those contracts. So these are kind of promising signs that we need to improve. Um, another thing that you asked me concretely about policy you know, as a result of the debate around the high prices of the past five, six years, again, it's a very recent discussion. Let's not forget that. But in light of the pressure by these excessive prices, now a lot of the issues mm -hmm. are on the agenda. A lot of the issues are on the agenda. And for instance, we see that even in Brussels, there is a plethora of policy initiatives ongoing. Um, on top of the uh, European Health Union, where also there, there are implications for the pharmaceutical strategy. But we see that um, now the Commission is launching a review of the general pharma uh, legislation. So the way we approve and the way we authorize medicines in Europe, that's a mega file, huge file with a lot of implications. For instance, there I would like to see very concrete, concretely to improve the quality of the data and the evidence we're getting at the time of the marketing authorization, the marketing authorization, so the green light, so that for our, our audience to understand, our listeners to understand, the marketing authorization is the moment that the European Medicines Agency, Europe's top regulator, gives the green light to um, have a product uh, in Europe, uh, a medicine in Europe. Then, of course, at, until it reaches the patient, uh, on the ground, there are other several steps in between. But the marketing authorization, for me, it is important to strengthen that 
point. It's a very important point in the life cycle of a drug. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to get better and more evidence at that time already so that I know and the doctors know, me as a patient, but also the doctors know what they're prescribing, what am I putting in my body, etc., etc. I hope I'm, I'm pretty clear yeah. on that. Another point where I would like to see improvement is on the question of incentives. Uh, IP, intellectual property related incentives. Incentives that actually are supposed to be rewarding meaningful innovation and not distorting competition. I don't want to have endless monopolies because the monopolies, how can you negotiate with a monopolist? Uh, they, the other side will always have the upper hand. So I would like to see a better alignment, a recalibration of those incentives. And what do I mean? If you want to reward innovation, reward meaningful innovation and make sure that that doesn't distort the competition and it doesn't undermine you as a public buyer. I want the payers to become buyers, better informed, uh, uh, with <laughs> stronger bargaining power. And, and the power comes from better mm -hmm. information. Um, so there is an opportunity there as well with um, the ongoing review of uh, the orphans and pediatrics legislation. So to sum up, and then I can go more in, in depth if you want me to, there are a lot of policy entries, there are a lot of opportunities, all of them fueled by the question of availability, affordability of medicines, and mm -hmm. the quality of innovation. And let's not forget the availability question. As I said, you know, we're talking about a lot of medicines which are all presented as breakthroughs and fantastic innovation. Not all of this is fantastic innovation. Most of it is not real innovation. As I said, it's imitation with excessive prices, insane price tags. And in any case, a lot of these products never make it to half of the EU member states. They are never marketed in the mm -hmm. country. Even. I think that's something very interesting that you said about the, um, the patent system, because when you see anti-vaccine uh, narrative, one argument that is very often used is the fact that those vaccines against COVID-19 were developed so fast and it's impossible that we manage to uh, invent uh, a vaccine so quickly and then big companies are making a lot of money on a product that they invented so quickly. This is not possible. Um, and it raised a lot of, uh, lot of doubts uh, and mistrust. And actually what I've always understood is that the vaccines against the COVID-19 are based on research that was made for decades before and that was mostly financed by public money and that this is a big issue because then the patent do not necessarily reflect the fact that most of the of the investment that, that, that were made to create those vaccines and to develop the knowledge that was necessary to do so was basically financed by the public. Uh, do you think something should have been done to better reflect Uh, who had put money uh, in inventing those vaccines? Yes, I'm not going to go into the conspiracy theories part, but I will say, because you did touch upon a very important uh, topic, um, I think at the beginning of the negotiations last spring, uh, so early on in the process of the pandemic, I would say March, April, there there should have been where uh, Ursula von der Leyen organized those uh, Eurovision-like uh, <laughs> virtual uh, pledging conferences, you might recall, uh, last May there. Uh, and that was hypocritical of the EU because the EU was talking about the global public good. And uh, at the same time, they were signing deals, which were literally the clear illustration of um, vaccine regionalism and nationalism. And they were really joining and jumping on the, on this, on this race, <laughs> uh, to book as many doses as possible. So anyway, that was a, that was a side comment. But I think at that point, there should have been the political will to talk about the licensing. 
of those vaccines. Indeed, uh, now I think this whole discussion around, for instance, the TRIPS waiver, it's a bit too late. Um, but, and I think where the emphasis should be is to make sure that legally speaking, we can uh, encourage or force companies to share their know-how and to increase manufacturing. Because look at what happened with the vaccines. I think last, last fall, when the EU was signing all of those deals, in that room where they were signing the deals, I'm sure that everyone knew that if there was to be a successful vaccine candidate or several uh, vaccines in the end, everyone would want them at the same time. And that was the purpose, of, in, in any case, of the EU deals to make sure that the EU would get to jump the queue and secure the doses. So then, I'm sure that around the table, somebody was lying. And in that case, I think it was the companies, and on the other hand, the public authorities that didn't put enough pressure on them to tell them, you're telling me that you will be able to deliver in terms of the, I'm talking about the manufacturing. You're telling me that when, if, when, at the point we didn't know if we would have uh, a vaccine or vaccines, that you will be able to produce. On, on a big enough, on a huge scale, because the whole world will be waiting for that. And there the companies were probably saying, yes, yes, we will deliver. But companies we know, it's nothing new, they promise, they over <laughs> promise and under deliver. And this is why we had this incredible uh, political drama in Europe with very real life implications on the national vaccination plans for the first half of 2021. When uh, governments and national uh, ministers of health, they didn't even know if they could vaccinate people because they weren't sure that they would have sufficient second doses. We're talking about incredible situations and uh, situations that show that the companies were allowed to have the complete control of the whole process. And you're right in saying that a lot of public money uh, was invested in it. That's clear. At the same time, we need to acknowledge that companies did deliver. Uh, so companies can be part of the solution with, of course, the problems on the global equity dimension. Thank you very much for this, for, for your answer. I think that was very clear. We have to find a good balance to criticize the system without fueling conspiracy theories. And it's, it's, uh, it's a big challenge. The last um, topic I would like to tackle, it's the Health Emergency, Emergency Preparedness and Response Authority that was launched by the by the European Commission on uh, very recently. What is your, your assessment uh, on, on this? The, the Greens in the European Parliament have formulated some, some proposals to improve the transparency of the tool. Can you, can you tell us a little bit what is your position? So HERA on paper is a good idea uh, and it's, it's, it, it has a lot of uh, potential. Uh, the problem is that the way that it's done uh, and practically the Commission drawing on the lessons of the past year and a half, uh, what, what were the lessons? Essentially, you remember uh, the Commission President Ursula von der Leyen being on the phone directly with pharma CEOs <laughs> uh, and, and having a very uh, quick decision-making processes, streamlined uh, decision-making process. This is what they're trying to do now. But it is shocking uh, that the European Parliament, for instance, is left out of the conversation. And it goes to what I was saying before, that the understandable need for swift and effective action is used as a, as a justification or as the basis to sacrifice public accountability and scrutiny. And HERA comes with a lot of public funds. HERA comes with a, a, a considerable um, a priority setting power as well. Uh, and there we see that it is a commission service. It is not an agency. 
And we all know how difficult it is to scrutinize and to keep track of everything that Kira will be doing as a simple commission service. So I am, as a citizen, I'm really worried because uh, Hira will have a lot of power, will have access to a lot of different funding streams and very little accountability. Even member states, even member states, even the council is kind of left out of the conversation and doesn't have real veto-making power. So for such an important and, and potentially influential and powerful and very useful, I would say, um, tool uh, that Hira is because it's 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 an authority uh, on paper, but in practice, it's a commission service. Um, I would like it to be uh, to guarantee that it will be uh, properly assessed and reviewed by at least the European Parliament. And this is what worries me as a citizen that we see, as I said, that pande the, under the pandemic, under the 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 angle of the emergency, things are done in a very quick way. A lot of things are slipping through the cracks. Um, a lot of public money is thrown at the industries without real uh, uh, assessment and public scrutiny. And that really, really worries me. So I hope that, um, again, as a proposal, I think it is a step in the right direction. Don't get me wrong. But the way that it is done, um, namely the, the, the lack of <laughs> a basic um, democratic scrutiny is quite uh, worrisome and, 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 and threatening. And, and Kira uh, links nicely to what we talked about right before, which is this manufacturing scale-up and uh, um, the capacity of, of companies to, to get mm -hmm. public funds in order to be able to, to boost their production capacity, which is all worthwhile. But I don't want Kira to become just yet another blank check um, uh, to the industries. And we saw during the pandemic that public health uh, and uh, health emergency management cannot be left up to the industries. Uh, so with Kira, I really wonder what the European Parliament is going to do, because right now it is left out of the conversation. And I think that came as a shock to many parliamentarians and, and to us uh, as civil society actors. And that brings me to a final point, which would be the role of civil society. You know, looking forward, I see that again over the past two years, since the start of the pandemic, although civil society groups in Brussels and most importantly on the national level, they reach out and they have access and they, they reach the most vulnerable parts of our society and they have worked nicely with the public authorities. Um, now they are squeezed out of key conversations and even the commission, I can tell you from our own experience in the health field, everyone is talking about health. The commission has the biggest budget for health ever. <laughs> and nevertheless, uh, the Commission is now trying once again, it's a deja vu, we had this problem also a few years back, to eliminate the public funding for health civil society groups. It really makes zero sense why the Commission is trying to do this. And it's really worrisome because it is now more than ever that we need to have the civil society voice heard mm -hmm. uh, and around the table. Yeah, so and thank you for the, for the answer. I think that's a very good transition to the last question of this podcast. Um, you said that, um, one of the big challenge of all those tools that are created that can be good, uh, and even very good in the, in the philosophy that there is behind them and there are good ideas, but that the big problem is the, the possibility to scrutinize them properly. 
Um, and you also said that uh, a, a big problem is the, the fact that civil society organizations are underfunded and that this uh, tendency is increasing, which poses big problems to public scrutiny of all those tools. Um, and the last question related to that that I wanted to ask you is what would you tell politicians? What do we have to do to counter this movement and to ensure that civil society organizations and more broadly citizens um, have access to scrutiny mechanism? What should we do concretely to, to improve their role in this? Yeah. Um, I think we need to go back to the basics, unfortunately. Eh? We need to go back to the basics uh, because uh, we moved backwards uh, over the past two years when it comes to the question of public accountability. Uh, unfortunately, over the past two years, under the pressure of the emergency, um, a lot of policymakers were telling me, this is not the time to ask questions, this is not the time to uh, scrutinize things, this is an emergency, we need to move fast, no questions asked. Uh, and I think, first of all, we need to have a proper assessment. We are still a bit in the eye of the storm, but it seems that the pandemic, at least in this part of the world, is coming under control. So I think we really need to look back and we need to learn and to have a proper thorough assessment of what went right and what went wrong. Because we need to be also honest that a lot of things were done for the first time. So it was uncharted territory uh, for policymakers. And of course, it's easy for us in hindsight to criticize. Uh, but I think it will be very beneficial to learn from the public authorities how they worked with the industries, what happened, uh, what were the surprises, mm -hmm. uh, what went right and what went wrong, as I said. So uh, in order to look forward, we first need to look back. Uh, and that will feed into our forward-looking uh, policies and decisions. Uh, secondly, I'm really worried by the, the squeezing, really, of, of civil society organizations. You asked me about patients. I mean, civil society groups like, like IFA and others, what do we do? We try to translate and to communicate what's happening in Brussels to the rest of Europe through our membership, etc. Uh, and if we're not there, then the, the number of voices who can really question things, uh, and not criticize for the sake of criticizing, but really question, raise some questions and put some more topics on the agenda where other interests are trying to keep them off the agenda, we will no longer be there. Or civil society groups, groups will uh, be fully funded by the industries. And uh, corporate cr capture is not a conspiracy theory. Corporate capture is uh, reality. <laughs> so we need to make sure that that does not become the norm. And we need to be uh, uh, sure because we need to make sure that this does not become the norm. Because if it does become the norm, then uh, people's faith in in uh, in the public overall management of crisis will be severely diminished. We talked briefly. We touched upon the question of anti-vax. You know, uh, vaccine-hesitant people are very different than anti-vax, and you don't want to have, for instance, vaccine-hesitant people becoming anti-vax simply because authorities are not proactively transparent and they are with their own decisions and 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 uh, practices fueling those conspiracy theorists and theories so for me the answer is transparency and even more transparency yeah. in times of crisis okay thank you very much yanis i think that was a very interesting end uh unfortunately we have to um end the discussion now but uh a lot was said and it's a it's an ongoing process of course uh still a lot of work to do i hope um everyone was as interested as i was in in the discussion 
Um, I wish you all the best and thanks again for your participation to, to that podcast, Yanis, and I hope to see you very soon in real life. Okay. Nice. Lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for the discussion. Thank you very much for the invitation.